Ephesians in this letter by the Apostle Paul to the church at Ephesus. Uh, just a little background again. The Apostle Paul was under house arrest in Rome at this time, about 61, 62 A.D., and he was soon uh, to face uh, martyrdom. And he wrote this letter to the church at Ephesus, which is over on Asia Minor, uh, present-day Turkey. And it is actually probably a, a cyclical letter, letter which went to Ephesus and then was sent to other churches in the area, the churches of Asia Minor. And yet God has superintended and brought it down to us today. Uh, and it is accurate and authentic and authoritative because it is God's word. Uh, by the way, if you don't happen to have a Bible, uh, one thing we ask here is that you bring a Bible, whether it's between covers like mine or on your uh, electronic device. If you don't have a Bible, there are some out on the desk in the lobby and the welcome desk, and feel free to take one of those. Uh, they're a hardbound uh, Bible, and if you don't happen to have one, I want you to take one because we'd like you to bring your Bible, bring a pen, and bring your brain. And uh, so those are the three things that we would like you to bring with you on Sunday mornings and also a smile, too. That's good. So we are glad you are here with us today. As uh, I had Wes read the beginning of Ephesians because we've been in it so long, it's easy to forget where we have been. And so he read the introductory paragraphs for us out of chapter 1. And, of course, if you're familiar with the book of Ephesians, it is probably the high point on what it means to be the church the Apostle Paul is addressing the saints at Ephesus, the saints being believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you've believed in him for eternal life, you are a saint, one who is set apart unto God's holiness by his power and his strength. And so uh, you are also a saint. And God has brought this word down to us. It's addressed to the saints at Ephesus, but by extension it is an apostolic writing, and it comes to us in God's word, and so we've been studying it. But it really is the high point of the New Testament about the church. If you think about uh, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and think about a gospel tract, presenting a gospel to those who have not believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel tract in the New Testament is the gospel of John. And uh, the gospel of John is where we invite people to, first of all, read about the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is a gospel tract. But here in Ephesians, it is written to believers and to a church that has already been established by the Apostle Paul there in Ephesus. And he is writing to encourage them, remind them of where they're at. And uh, the city of Ephesus was a pagan worship center, the temple of uh, Diana was there, and uh, there, many of the people who came to this church and who became believers came out of a pagan cult worship, and uh, they were Romans. There were some Jewish people there, and so it was a group that was amalgamated, if you will, Jewish and Gentile, which we don't understand the import of that and the impact of that uh, like they did in the first century because uh, to the Jewish person, Gentiles, anybody who was non-Jewish was simply called the dog, and the uh, Gentiles looked down their noses at Jewish people, and which still goes on. Anti-Semitism is alive and well. It has been going through the centuries. I'm convinced that Satan still is working to destroy Israel in all that it does in Jewish people. And so we come to the book of uh, Ephesians, and the portion that uh, Wes read for us is the beginning part of chapters 1 through 3 which conveys to us the riches we have in Jesus Christ. If you were paying attention, as Wes uh, read, you'll notice that there were a number of times that in him or in Christ uh, were referenced there. I've underlined in my Bible all of those occurrences in red ink 
It tells us to the saints who are at Ephesus, uh, verse 1, who are faithful in Christ Jesus. And there's this idea that we are vitally united with Christ because of his blood, because of what he's done for us, his death, burial, and resurrection. And so we are in Christ. A number of times uh, he emphasizes this. And it's to the praise of his glory three times. He mentions that in chapter 1 in, uh, let's see, in verse 6. And then again in uh, verse, let me see, verse uh, four, 12. And then again in, in verse 14. To the praise of his glory. And that's what the church is about. The church is called to be worshipers to the praise of his glory. And that is why we exist, and that is why we are here, is to praise his glory, uh, to remind ourselves that those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ are in him, vitally united with him. We have a future and a hope, and he is the one who energizes us. And then it tells us, Paul tells us, that we were sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise, down in verse 13. And that idea of your security in your belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, the security of your salvation, that you cannot lose it. Nobody can take it away from you because if they could, they would be more powerful than God. And therefore, the God of the Bible would cease to be God. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So you see all three persons of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, mentioned in these opening comments by the Apostle Paul in this letter to the church at Ephesus. So in this final letter, in this church I was in, uh, in, uh, our, on our Sunday mornings, as I read it again this week, uh, I was thinking about an Old Testament passage, which really chapters 1 through 3 kind of expands upon. You may be familiar with the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah. Of course, he wrote Jeremiah, and he also wrote Lamentations. And he is called the weeping prophet, Jeremiah is an interesting character. He is probably one of my favorite Old Testament prophets or persons out of the Old Testament. Jeremiah experienced much opposition to his ministry, much opposition to proclaiming the truth of God. And uh, he served for some 40 years in Judah, which was uh, the two tribes of southern Israel. Uh, By his time, northern Israel, the northern ten tribes, had already been carried off into captivity by the Assyrians, who were the superpower of the world at that time, some years before. But here in the seventh century BC, uh, he is recognizing that uh, God is going to discipline Judah and he sends Babylonia to discipline them. And of course we know in 587 that Babylon carries away, destroys Jerusalem and carries away many in captivity. And uh, then Jeremiah is, uh, we don't hear from him again. He uh, goes down to Egypt, but we don't hear from him again. And Babylonia is the world's superpower, and they're in conflict with Egypt. Assyria has faded into the dust of history. And so here is Jeremiah. But in chapter 3 of Lamentations, and Lamentations is as Jeremiah is the witness to the destruction of his beloved city, of his beloved people, and he laments, which is a weeping or a crying. And yet in chapter 3, these verses just jump off the page where he writes in verse 21, This I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, his prayer to God. And I was thinking this morning that uh, the Apostle Paul really does expand upon God's loving kindnesses and his compassions. In fact, in Hebrew, the word 
Loving kindness is a translation of a Hebrew word that's pronounced hesed. And hesed is the Old Testament equivalent to the New Testament word we translate as grace. And it's that unmerited favor that God's unmerited favor never ceases. His compassions or mercies never fail. An all-powerful God. Even though the world looked like it was crumbling around Jeremiah, he could pray that prayer and that praise. And Paul expands upon that about God's loving kindnesses. His grace never ceases. His mercies never fail in the first three chapters of Ephesians. And so as we look at that wealth of what God has given to us, it's an amazing thing. And just a little bit of review in Ephesians. I'd encourage you to read through it, even though we finalize with this message our study in Ephesians this week. Uh, yet it is ongoing in the truths we have learned and the truths still to be discovered and contained in this little letter about what it means to be the church. Here in America, in the United States, we tend in the West, basically, we tend to individualize our faith. And we don't have a good sense of what it means to have a corporate identity as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul really is addressing what it means to be in this corporate identity, in this thing called the church, this community of faith. And this is a local expression of that. There are other local expressions in our community. And to recognize that God is at work in this. But remember a basic outline of the book of Ephesians. Chapters 1 through 3 is our wealth. Chapters 4 and 5 is our walk. The Apostle Paul uses that word as a metaphor uh, to lifestyle. He uses the word walk. And in chapter 6, uh, the Christian's warfare. Some separate that out. Uh, but Ephesians is the wealth, the walk, and the warfare. And our wealth are the riches. In the first three chapters, you don't see an imperative command that we're supposed to do something. It's all about what God has done in the Lord Jesus Christ through the power of his Holy Spirit. And he uses that terminology, walk. And in fact, in chapter 2, look at verse 1 with me of Ephesians. He tells us you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. Uh, so we had a former walk. Even if you trusted in Jesus Christ at vacation Bible school when you were five years old, or if like me, you were an adult when you believed in Jesus for everlasting life, we formally walked. That's our former walk. Uh, the answer to that, of course, is verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And so that was our former walk. And God intervened. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can probably point back to a time period anyway. I can't pinpoint a day or a time, but I can pinpoint a time period when I was 28 years old that God opened my eyes to the truth that Jesus Christ died for me and that believing in him, I would have everlasting life because he rose again, gaining the victory over sin and death. And then again on this idea of walk in verse 10 of chapter 2, it's our present walk, present tense walk. We say, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Or the lifestyle is to have our eyes open to see what God is doing as he prepares the good works ahead of time. We are saved by grace. We are not saved by our good works. 
good works never got anybody to heaven. It's only by what Jesus Christ has done, believing in him for everlasting life. And then he goes on and uh, finishes up in chapter 3 and 4. He talks about the church and what it means to be the church and how we are unified in Jesus Christ now. That it is a new entity, a new society. If you have been with us, you're familiar with how we've taught that the church began in Acts chapter 2. If you go back to Acts chapter 2, you can see that's where the New Testament church began. Before that time, there was Israel, and and that was uh, a different entity, but the church started in Acts chapter 2, and it has gone on all these 2,000 years, over 2,000 years now. And in chapter 4, we see that there were... This begins with the commands or the imperatives based upon our riches in 1 through 3. This is how we should live. So the Apostle Paul instructs us uh, how we should live. Therefore, verse 1 of chapter 4, I, a prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. So there is a walk in unity. He goes on to talk about the Holy Spirit provides every believer with a unified front. And so we are unified. We are to be diligent to maintain the unity of the Holy Spirit. That is why in churches, when there are struggles between individuals, either both or one of those individuals is out of fellowship with God because the Holy Spirit cannot be divided. The Holy Spirit provides us with unity. So there's this walk in unity clear down to verse 16 of chapter 4. And then there is a walk in holiness beginning in chapter 4, verse 17. This walk in holiness, we are to lay aside falsehood, speak truth to one another. By the way, chapter 4 is the pinnacle of what it means to be the church, how to function as a church family. Chapter 4 is always the place I go to when there is disruption or problems within a local church body. And you can usually find the answer to the problem in chapter 4 of Ephesians. So there is a walk in holiness And then chapter 5, a walk in love. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. And uh, that is a pretty big phrase, just as. Just as Jesus Christ. Uh, You know, to love one another. Uh, You know, what is that old saying? You know, to... uh, To be with saints above, oh, that will be glory. But to be with saints below, that's another story. And, uh, you know, this idea that he is telling us, just as Christ has loved us, that is with uh, unmerited favor in that sense. That's with grace upon, to walk in love. And then we're told to walk in light. In verse 8 of chapter 5, you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. We walk in the daylight. Light and darkness in Scripture is used as a metaphor for good and evil, for following Christ or following Satan. And so we are to walk as children of light. And then we are to walk wisely, verse 15. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. So live wisely, walk wisely. Nobody wants to be called a fool. In fact, there's a whole book in the Bible, the book of Proverbs, which talk about wise living and foolish living. There's contrasts all through that. And uh, if you want to know more about how to live wisely, start reading the book of Proverbs. Read a chapter every day, and you'll be done with it in a month. And you will learn much about what it means to live wisely. And the Apostle Paul is calling us to live wisely there. And then a key for the next section 
is found in verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. He's talking about the Holy Spirit controlling us, the Holy Spirit giving us the impulses of our hearts and lives as we make decisions and go through life. How do we know if we're filled with the Holy Spirit? That goes on in verse 19, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. And so there's, there's fellowship, there's worship, and then there's thankfulness, verse 20. Always giving thanks for the things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. And then fourthly, submission to one another, verse 21, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. These are all present participles, so they're ongoing actions that are a result of being filled with the Holy Spirit. When you wonder, am I filled with the Holy Spirit? Are you in fellowship with other believers? Are you worshiping God? Thirdly, are you giving thanks? Do you have a thankful heart, a heart of gratitude? And fourthly, are you subject to other people, to one another? And so those are the four evidences of whether or not you're filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he illustrates it in the rest of chapter 5 and in the chapter 6. He talks about wives and husbands, about marriage. He talks about children, chapter 6, fathers, and then uh, slaves and masters, which contemporarily would be uh, employers and employees. And uh, that he illustrates, uses all those things to illustrate, are we being submissive to one another? And he uses that and instructs us in those arenas, which are very a gut level, if you will, because we all live in families and have relationships with people, and how do we relate to one another? And in verse 10 of chapter 6, finally be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that so you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Did you see the transition where we walk, 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 walk this way, and now it's stand firm, stand firm. We are not walking, we're not attacking, but we are standing firm. Why would he put this here? because that's where Satan is going to attack us in our family relationships, in our church relationships, in our work and employer-employee relationships. If he can divide us, he is going to win a victory for that day anyway. And so the Apostle Paul is warning us about standing firm and using the armor that Jesus Christ provides. And he goes through all those items of armor uh, to fight the spiritual battle. And he does that. And in verse 18, which we saw a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago, was that uh, the prayer, all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And that is the key that goes over all things. The key to success in the Christian life is an attitude of prayer and to pray as we go. And I talked about it being an ongoing conversation with God. Oftentimes we think of prayer as, you know, kneeling by the bed and folding our hands a certain way, but it's not about position. It's about the attitude, about communicating with God and praising him, worshiping him, adoring him, confession of sin, thanksgiving, and then asking, supplicating for what he's going to do. So you think about that, and I think about this whole package of Ephesians and this whole idea of instructing the church family. And this is how we are to live and I was thinking that God created the church to really be a fabric, if you will, for everything that is woven together is interdependent on one another. Now, we are given the Holy Spirit to maintain the unity of what we call the church. And I think of the word shalom, the Hebrew word shalom. You've probably heard that out of the Old Testament. And a biblical shalom is basically... <coughs> 
Uh, it's flourishing, wholeness, delight, peace. And that's one of the sub-themes of the book of Ephesians is that idea of peace with God. Therefore, we can have peace with one another and with other people. And I think of biblical shalom and I think of an illustration. And if, if I could have, I would have brought thousands of threads, okay, thousands of, 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 of fabric threads and thrown them down on the table. And if I did that, they wouldn't be fabric. They would simply be strings laying on each other, wouldn't they? But threads become fabric when each one has been woven together over, under, around, and through every other one. The more interdependent they are, the more beautiful they are, the more interwoven the threads are, the stronger and warmer they are. You know, Jesus Christ has created the church beginning in Acts chapter 2, and it is made with millions of entities. You and I, we're just a small representation of the universal church and uh, we are a local expression of the church, but he didn't make us all the same, okay? We're different. Some of us are a little bit bigger threads, different colored threads. Some of us are a little frayed around the edges, and yet when Christ wo weaves us together, we are stronger and warmer in how we appear to the world. We are beautiful, harmonious, knitted, independent relationship, interdependent relationships with one another. We are stronger together. We are part of something bigger than any individual. And I wanted to remind you of that. So in this review, we've seen the wealth of what Jesus Christ has done for us. We are instructed on how to live it out and then to recognize that the reality that there is warfare. Well, the Apostle Paul, as we come to the last passage, take your copy of Scripture and turn to chapter 6, verse 21. Verse 21, we'll finish up this last paragraph this morning. Interestingly, as I look at Bible commentaries, and uh, many of them just skip this last part. Isn't that interesting that they don't pay any attention to it, and yet it is part of God's word, and it's not just closing comments that seem, uh, you know, uh, very predictable. Uh, there is instruction here for us. We're introduced to another man in this uh, portion of scripture. Let me read it for you. If you'd stand, if you're able to, for a reading of God's word as an act of worship, let me read verses 21 through the end of this letter. Chapter 6, verse 21. But that you may know about my circumstances, how I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and <clears throat> faithful minister in the Lord, will make everything known to you. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about us and that he may comfort your hearts. Peace be to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. Heavenly Father, we pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would teach us today, guide our hearts and minds, and may we uh, capture what you would want us to have, and your Holy Spirit would apply it in just mighty ways, even through this day and through this upcoming week. In Jesus' powerful name I pray, amen. You may be seated. Well, we're introduced uh, to one of Paul's partners, his compatriots, and that's Tychicus. Uh, if you read his Greek name, remember uh, the English version of this is just a transliteration where they took Greek letters and transliterated English letters over them. So if you read the Greek, uh, his Greek name would be Tuxikos. And so if any of you are expecting a son, name him Tuxikos, and uh, he will be uh, the talk of his school when he gets that big. So... 
uh, but Tychicus, uh, he appears some five times in the New Testament. Uh, we get the impression, more than an impression, he was a partner in ministry with the Apostle Paul. He appears in Acts chapter 20, Ephesians chapter 6, Colossians 4, 2 Timothy 4, and Titus 3. But we see three things about Tychicus, Tuxikos. Uh, we see three things about him. First of all, he was available. He was faithful, secondly, and he was teachable, thirdly. Look at verse 21 again. He tells uh, the, the, the readers of Ephesus that, uh, so that you may know about my circumstances, how I am doing. Uh, and he's going to send this man over to Ephesus. He's with him in Rome. And some have speculated that Tychicus was the Emancipasis, which like a secretary, he wrote down while Paul dictated the letter of Ephesians and then carried it over to Asia Minor. And so anyway, he is going to send him so that these folks will know, these brothers and sisters in Christ, some thousand miles away will know what is happening to the Apostle Paul, that he's under house arrest. He's going to be tried by Nero, Emperor Nero. And uh, they want to know about that. The Apostle Paul, remember, he prayed up in verse 20 or asked them to pray that he was an ambassador in chains and proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak, speaking of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's anticipating appearing before Nero, who was not exactly the nicest emperor ever to live. And the Apostle Paul was praying for boldness and for the clarity of words that he was going to speak. And so he's sending Tychicus over to uh, make known to them what's going on. And we follow the same pattern. When we send a missionary overseas and they come back and they report, just like we have you, uh, Paul and Diana May who will come back in a few weeks and they will report what happened over there and talk about uh, the churches there. And uh, just like they're reporting to them now, we know many of those folks in Macau, they've been here, some of us have been over there. And so they are reporting back and forth. And this is a pattern established in the New Testament. And so uh, making things known. And he tells us in verse 22, I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know about us and that he may comfort or encourage your hearts. And that's the whole thing is that we don't stand alone in this thing called the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is bigger than us. You can go anywhere in the world pretty much and run into other Christians. You may not speak their language. You may not understand their culture. And yet we have the commonality. We have a commonality of Jesus Christ in our lives and our hearts. What a wonderful thing. That's why the church is transnational. It's transethnic. It's transracial. Uh, it is all over the world. And so the Apostle Paul tells us that Tychicus is a faithful man. He's a beloved brother and a servant. Notice that there. Uh, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister of the Lord. He's the one who's sending, that uh, Paul is sending over there. Uh, the words that were found here, the sentences, are almost identical to Colossians chapter 4, verses 4, uh, 7 through 8. And there he's also referred to as a fellow bond slave or bond servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he was faithful, a faithful man, a faithful person, that he was doing that. Secondly, he was available. He was uh, making himself available to go to, pr to tell the people about Paul's circumstances, to make known to them, to communicate everything. The Apostle Paul, interestingly, in this conclusion of this epistle, even though he spent many years in Ephesus, it doesn't sound real personal like in some of his other letters. And I think it's because that he's 
depending on Tychicus, to tell them all the details of the personal uh, type of messages. So he is not only faithful, but he's available. Thirdly, he is a teachable man. He was sent uh, to travel from Rome to Ephesus, some 1,000 miles, and he was teachable because Paul told him, now you do this, and he was submissive to being teachable about that so that believers would know about Paul and that he would comfort and encourage believers. And so the Apostle Paul is sending his partner in ministry, one of them, over back to Ephesus and probably to the other churches there as they took this letter to many other churches. Uh, You may not know this about Martin Luther, the great reformer, but Martin Luther was subject to great periods of depression in his ministry. Of course, I think I would be too because people were seeking to kill him and uh, put him on trial. So one of the great reformers uh, was subject to great depression. And in one of these times of uh, mental and emotional blackness, the reformer's wife, Catherine, put on the black clothes of a widow and walked into his study mourning loudly. Luther was surprised. He said, who died? Uh, Why was she sorrowing? And she said, dear doctor, I have cause for the saddest of weeping, for the God of heaven has died. Her gentle rebuke encouraged Martin Luther, and he took courage. And so the people of Ephesus, they knew the Apostle Paul was probably been arrested and imprisoned, and he was waiting trial in Rome, and they did not know the outcome. And so it would be subject to the fact that, where, where is God in all this? And that's the challenge for you and I when we face adverse times, when we face dark days and dark nights of the soul. Is God really there? Or as Catherine uh, said, I think God is dead, you know. Uh, so Tychicus have shown us the principles of faithfulness, availability, and teachability. And then he concludes this letter. The Apostle Paul concludes it with blessings in verses 23 through 24. We see four blessings in these couple of verses, the blessings of peace, love, faith, and grace. And as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul wants us to experience peace. Again, one of the sub-themes through the letter of Ephesians is this idea of peace. You know, peace is not the absence of conflict. Think of the Apostle Paul. He's in great conflict. He's in prison. He's in under house arrest. He's chained to Roman guards. But it is the presence of Christ in our lives, the presence of Christ in our lives. It's not the absence of conflict. I was reading about a uh, Roman Catholic nun at her convent. She was staying alone in her convent, and there was an elevator in this convent, and Uh, She took the elevator, and the elevator uh, quit working between floors, and so she was trapped in this elevator. And uh, the New York Times reports that she was trapped for four four nights and three days. She tried pushing on the elevator door, but she was 85 years old and lacked the strength, and uh, the electricity was off. She had her cell phone with her, but there wasn't a signal. Thankfully, she had a little bottle of water, some celery sticks, and a few cough drops, that she had in her purse when she went into the elevator. At first, uh, she reacted against her situation, said, this can't be happening to me. And then she decided to turn her elevator into a personal prayer retreat. And it was either panic or pray, she later told an interviewer for CNN. She started viewing the experience as a gift. I believe that God's presence was my strength and my joy, she said. I felt God's presence almost immediately. I felt like he provided the opportunity for a closer relationship with him. 
And so that's the idea that we can experience peace in the midst of adversity because Jesus Christ is in our lives. He is with us. He never leaves us and never uh, departs from us. Peace is one of the themes, as I've said, of this letter. And it is the whole concept that peace is found in Jesus Christ. He enables us to have peace with one another in chapter 2, to find peace with Christ in verses 14 through 18 of chapter 2, and to claim the reality that Christ himself is our peace in verse 14 of chapter 2. Jesus Christ preached peace, chapter 2. We are to preserve the unity of the Holy Spirit and the bond of peace, and it is a gospel of peace. Peace produces things. And that's the next two things we get. Love with faith. Believers are to experience the love of God. Look again. Peace be to the brethren. And by the way, that's male and female, not just the guys. And love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Love with faith. He in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons. He predestined the church to exist. We have a reputation or should have a reputation of loving one another. And God, in his love, made us alive from the dead in uh, this book of Ephesians. I was thinking about uh, a story I read by Brian Chappell, I think is his name. He talked about uh, one of the most powerful images from his wife's childhood. When she and a neighbor girl were playing in the woods behind their homes, the neighbor girl uh, wandered into uh, from the path and stepped onto a nest of hornets on the ground and the bees began to swarm and sting and the girls began to scream for help and suddenly out of nowhere uh, like superman his wife says her dad came crashing through the woods leaping over logs hurtling vines and bushes he swooped each girl up under each arm and tore through the woods at full speed to get away from the hornets as he ran the father's grip bruised the children's arms branches scratched their thighs and thorns grabbed at their clothes The rescue hurt, but it was better than the hornets. The image is not unlike God the Father's work in our lives. He sees the danger, and at times, even before we can call out, he comes crashing into our worlds from some uh, throne above the universe. He hurdles galaxies, an infinite expanse of time to enter our realities and take us from spiritual danger. That's why he's provided us with the spiritual warfare, the armor that Paul details for us in chapter 6. The goal is always our safety. The motive is always her love. Believers experience the love of Christ. And if we went around today and did testimonies, we would hear about the love of the Lord Jesus Christ rescuing us from the darkness and from hell-bent destination for sure. And then thirdly, we experience God's faithfulness. C.S. Lewis wrote this about faith. He said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun is risen, not only because I can see it, because by it I see everything else. We should have a reputation of a people of faith, a people of faith. Faith is the channel of our salvation. Grace is the means. Through faith we have access to God. Christ dwells in our heart through faith. We have one faith. There's unity in faith. It is a vital part of the armor of God. And then fourthly, believers experience grace. Verse 24, where the Apostle Paul wishes grace be upon those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. Believers experience grace is simply unmerited favor, an expression of God's unconditional love. In fact, in Colossians, there's a hint that throughout eternity, we will be growing in our understanding of infinite grace. 
as we are in heaven, as we are in the new heaven and the new earth, we will be talking about and growing about and studying what it means to have grace. And if you've been a believer for a long time, you know that grace just gets bigger. God's grace is an amazing thing because it's sourced from God. It's infinite. The grace is given praise and glory in chapter 1. We are saved by grace in chapter 2. God's rich grace will be continually revealed in the ages to come. Kyle Snodgrass, in his commentary on Ephesians, writes these words, God's grace does not depend upon our undying love, but upon his faithfulness to his promises. God is faithful to his own promises. We should be characterized by faithful availability, a teachability, and growing in our faith, and it results in peace, love, grace, that only God can provide. And so we need to be aware of opportunities that we have that God puts before us and remind us of uh, the book of Ephesians and living out our faith. Remember, as I began, I talked to you about uh, Lamentations chapter 3. This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord is loving kindness indeed never ceases. Compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, dear God. My question is, and the question I had for myself, is how many times has God mercied you? How many times has he had compassion on you? You know, in that verse, it says they are new every morning. That Hebrew word that's translated new is hadas, which means never before experienced. Never before experienced. Today's mercy is different from yesterday's mercy, his loving kindness and his compassion. Just as things change in our lives, it's different every morning. Well, I want you to try this little exercise. Figure out how old you are, not in years, but in days. That's the sum total of the different kinds of mercy, loving kindness, compassion. You've received life to date. By the time you're 21, you've experienced 7,665 unique mercies. When you hit midlife, it numbers 14,600 days. And by the time you hit retirement, God has mercied you 23,725 times. How about me? I figured mine out. I have had new every morning for 25,830 mornings counting today. His mercy is new every morning. Great is God's faithfulness. How about you? How many mercies have you experienced? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning and thank you for your word. Thank you for this letter to the Ephesian 